I, I, they, they've come a long way in a very short period of time. Uh, I would say China is going you know, zero to 60 very, very fast. Uh, it wasn't too long ago that, that they didn't have uh, significant space capabilities, and, and today, today they do. And so, God forbid, if, if deterrence were to fail and we were to get into a conflict, and again, our desire is not to, our desire is to deter that conflict from happening. But if we did, we would be up against an adversary that has the same space capabilities and the same advantages that we currently enjoy. Uh, they use those capabilities to track our ground forces, our maritime forces, or our air forces, and it's, it's uh, a threat to those forces. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello again, and welcome back. That was United States Space Force Chief of Space Operations, General Jay Raymond, this Sunday on CNN's news show, GPS 360 with Fareed Zakaria. What I'd like to point out is the fact that the CSO said the U.S.'s adversary, quote, enjoys the same space capabilities and the same advantages that we currently enjoy. That implies parity, not overmatch. I wonder if Congress is paying attention to what the CSO is saying. It's only got until August 8th to pass an appropriations bill. That's just four weeks. Then it's summer recess. And once the senators and representatives return after Labor Day, it's going to be election season, which is notoriously for being an unproductive legislative period, nearly as hobbled as the post-election lame duck session. And don't forget, the new fiscal year starts in October. We've got Peter Garrison and Chris Stone. They're paying attention to the defense, space, and appropriations process. You've heard them before. Both of them are space and defense think tank policy wonks and book authors and much more. But before we get to Chris and Peter, here are four quick data points. First, the national security top line is currently in the ballpark of $850 billion. The administration asked for just under $27 billion for all DOD space activities. House appropriators say the Space Force should get $24.2 billion, or roughly 3% of the total budget. And lastly, the Space Force will have an on-the-books end strength of 8,600, that's 8,600 guardians, or roughly 0.6% of all military personnel. Now, here is our discussion. Hello, Peter. Chris, thank you for making the time to give me your take on where we are in the 2023 defense space authorization and appropriations process. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Chris and Peter, you two are downlink regulars, but for our new listeners, won't you briefly introduce yourselves? And Chris, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, my name is Christopher Stone. I am the Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence in Washington, D.C. area. And uh, I am one of the lead commentators and authors here on everything related to space power, space force, and U.S. Space Command related items. And Peter? I'm Peter Gerritsen, a Senior Fellow in Defense Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. And I'm co-director of the Space Policy Institute and uh, co-author of Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. 
You know, last time we spoke about the defense space budget, it was just after the presidential budget request was submitted to Congress in March. And since then, both houses of Congress have made progress in drafting their defense bills. And after a short recess for Independence Day, Congress is returning to work this week but that August recess is a mere 31 days away. In both versions of the National Defense Authorization Act, there's good, there's bad, and there's ugly. So why don't we start with what's good? Since the House and Senate received the budget request, both the Senate and the House Armed Services Committees have served up forward-leaning additions. Peter, what stood out to you? And, And then Chris, you follow up. Well, first of all, I think that it is useful to see that uh, at least on the House side, um, they have made it plain their preference for a Space National Guard. And there's been uh, noises in the Senate as well. So we can hope that that makes it through or makes it into the conference bill. That would be a step forward. You know, overall, what really strikes me about this budget is what a small change it is from the president's budget. So President's budget, uh, as submitted, was a fairly substantial change. It it moved over a significant amount of funding, consolidating the Space Development Agency. Um, it uh, it put a great emphasis on uh, sort of uh, missile tracking and and warning a little bit on space control. And uh, this was really just a five percent difference, slight slightly higher, not enough to account for inflation, but you know, a little bit more than the president requested on most things. Uh, There were a a, a couple losers. But uh, what really stands out to me is just how much on the same page the Space Force, the administration, and Congress are in terms of priorities for funding. Now, that's not necessarily where I would put the priorities, but it is interesting to see that there is a, a fairly close agreement uh, between the service, the administration, and the Congress. Yeah, I, I would I would uh, echo a little bit there. Um, as mentioned before, there are some good things in here. The one of the things is that the Space Force was created to do was to consolidate all the different um, organizations, agencies, and service uh, entities that had space related connections, whether they be acquisition or operational. And having the Space Development Agency budget move over, including the personnel of about 200 or so people, uh, was good to see that. Um, the, the, obviously, the next-gen missile warning and tracking for the hypersonic and maneuverable uh, missile systems is definitely a, a big deal, definitely something that's needed. The interesting thing, though, uh, is that they took money away from the, the geo-based one, the, the, which is the warning part the next-gen OPIR, uh, even though they added some. And then they also took out money for the ground ground segment, which is interesting given the fact that Congress typically has not been very happy with the fact that the Space Force and and a lot of the other programs they've absorbed from the Navy and Army have had issues with with having space vehicles on orbit, but unable to use all of their abilities because of a lack of ground segment. So I find that intriguing that despite that that viewpoint, they still decided to take money out of there. And then, of course, uh, space surveillance is definitely a big deal that we see some some additional money to, especially uh, what's called Dark Site One, which is uh, a rapid prototyping that allows for all weather tracking of space objects out in geosynchronous orbit. 
which is obviously, you know, pretty far out there, about 35,000 miles or so. And uh, a lot of activity is starting to pick up, as we've seen in, in the press, with the Chinese and others doing um, the ability to pull satellites out of geo and put them into disposal orbits and could possibly use that as an ASAT type of technology as well as a, a other thing. So there are, there are a lot of uh, interesting things. And as, as Peter mentioned, not much really to help with inflation. So while I don't necessarily agree that it's necessarily really as big of a plus up as they make it out to be, um, I think it's definitely uh, something worth watching and, and, and seeing. And I will also lastly say that I sort of disagree slightly with Peter in the sense that he says he thinks it's interesting how they're all aligned. I'm not surprised by that. And the reason why I'm not surprised by that is because of just the way um, space leadership has tended to go along with what the policy restraints are. And because the policy restraints are and the priorities are what they are from the administration and from the heavy hand of OMB, um, I don't think that, um, I think part of the reason why we're seeing some of the response from Congress on the negative side, uh, as well as the positive side, is be just because of who's in control of the purse strings currently and how they really typically traditionally don't go against their own their own president in the White House. Um, because of the, of the Democrats being in charge in both houses. So I think that's to be expected, um, even with a little bit of a plus up uh, in, in the process. You know, last time we spoke, Chris, you had a real concern about whether Congress was prepared to put its money where its mouth is. And is Capitol Hill actually serious about deterring and war fighting in the space domain? You know, are we remaining stuck in second gear in standard support the other services mode? Um, I, I think that what you're seeing in the budget is more of a primary war fighting support type of situation. Understandably so in some ways. I mean, obviously, we've got to have the, the missile warning and tracking. We've got to have the, the ability to do space surveillance out in a deep space better um, to, to characterize and, and track and see what, what they're doing out there. And of course, we need to have the the actual rockets to launch the stuff. Um, but at the same time, um, you're not seeing a whole bunch of of uh, classified space activities, which you know presumably is is the offense and defensive capabilities that are necessary. And while I understand that you know we're only given so much money to work with, personally speaking, if if space is the warfighting domain that we've been saying it is since 2014 and that the service was created to organize, train, and equip an armed force to provide forces to U.S. Space Command to deal with what's going on 100 kilometers and up and not just supporting all the terrestrial activities, which, again, is important. I don't see that we're there yet. And um, with RDT&E being at the lion's share of the Space Force budget, I mean, you can only do so much with with RDT&E capabilities. You have to be able to, to deploy and organize and equip. And I don't, I don't, I just don't see it in this budget. Chris, can you quickly explain what is RDT&E to those that don't know the acronym? Sure. It's research, development, technology, and engineering, um, experimentation kind of stuff. So um, pretty much it's, it's concepts, it's new vehicles, it's different ways of doing things. It can be something as, as advanced as a new weapon system, which I've not seen much of, or it could be something like a, a, a new way to do um, a SATCOM relay. So like instead of using radio frequency communication relays, you use optical relays. So you're basically improving bandwidth or you're upgrading something from something that's 
that may be older uh, to something that's a little more resilient or a little more um, effective with smaller vehicles, let's say, uh, and, and you're testing that in space in order to get the technology readiness levels up to a sufficient level that people are comfortable with funding a full-up program. And so that's that's what you see that's different from operations and maintenance, which is where typically most money is in most services are for doing day-to-day operations or overseas-related activities from a terrestrial perspective. Uh, but in the case of the Space Force, would be in orbit and beyond. And so in this, just to clarify... In, in this particular appropriations authorization discussion that's going on on Capitol Hill and, and from the president's request, is RDT&E, you know, taking up the lion's share or is operations and management? I mean, just, just to circle back so that everyone can be on the same page um, going forward in the discussion. Sure. The, the majority of the budget for the Space Force is RDT&E. Um, O&M is, is less uh, than that. If you look at what we probably mentioned earlier in the previous podcast is if you look at it compared to other services, uh, we're still less than 5% of the total DOD budget, even with the you know, projected 20, 30% growth, as they like to call it. But, but that, that can be deceiving when you use percentages, especially with a budget as small as the one the Space Force is, is given to, to work within. And so while the space world has had unique ways of getting operational capability out of research and development systems, that's not the same as a full-up program, and it's not the same as full-up units manned and equipped to engage in various situations to deal with various threats. Thanks so much for that. And, and Peter, just yesterday, the executive director at Space Systems Command, Joy White, she said, we've got to be ready by 2026 because that's how fast China and Russia are building out capabilities to deny us in space. And I hate to say this, but I didn't get the sense of urgency from the budget proposal. At least in the committee speeches, I have heard that sense of urgency, but is this translating into the actual law, into their writing? And if not, what do the authorizers really need to do? So my answer is not at all. Um, the only place where you really see a sense of urgency is in the uh, missile tracking layer and the proliferated low Earth orbit, which is really a deterrence by denial. But in every other way, it's really China out there setting the standard, setting the standard on all new counter space activities, setting the standard on where they're going, you know, out into deep space above geo. Um, the, the number of new things they're they're doing, including you know taking, uh, you know, showing the initiative by you know moving a satellite out into the graveyard orbit, you know, flying satellites with robot arms. Uh, they're far ahead, certainly, of anything that the Space Force feels up to advertising. So I have to say, you know, absolutely not. You know, if the United States wants to portray itself as a competitive space power, it needs to be building comparable systems that show that not only can it take a punch, but it is capable of giving a punch if it should be required for retaliation. And I'll also add real quick that that 2027 date um, is related typically with with a Taiwan scenario in the public sphere. And if you look at the history of of our intelligence estimates, um, we tend to be a few years um, 
beyond what typically happens. So if you say 2027, it might be 2024 um, because of just the fact that they have a multi-layered attack architecture, their words, that gives them the ability to gain escalation dominance across reversible, like jamming, all the way up to uh, irreversible, such as what, what Peter mentioned, such as the counter space, uh, kinetic ASATs, the directed energy, the high-powered microwaves, things of that sort that we we may have tech demonstrators for, but we don't have anything that's deployed. And if it's not deployed, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you can imagine that it would be comparable to if you know absolutely every offensive weapon system in the Army, Navy, or Air Force was classified, and the only thing anybody knew was that you had you know say you know refueling or transport ships and planes. So. What do we need to do to be ready for, let's say, the intelligence, you know, date, which is, you know, 2026 or 2027, you know, 2024 is only a year and a half away. So I doubt that, you know, anything's really going to be ready by then. I'm just being practical here. But let's say the date really is 2026 or 2027. I mean, do we actually have stuff in the works or are we just, we're just not doing it? I mean, I suspect it's like Chris said, if the policy on top is uh, is asking the Space Force to be restrained, um, it's very unlikely that if something is not already flying, that that they could possibly scramble to get something on orbit by that date. It just, it takes longer than that just to run the requirement paperwork through the system with the system as it's currently configured. Well, so here's here's one way to look at this from uh, at, like what should we do kind of an approach. It's not necessarily, as Peter mentioned, what they're going to do because of the policy. The, currently, the, the policy view is more geared toward norms of behavior, restraint and testing, things of that sort. It's, it's more of a diplomatic, heavy kind of approach, not so much a deterrence approach um, or even a war readiness approach, to be, to be quite honest. And so um, if if they wanted to do something within the next two or three years, the quickest thing that you could do is is leverage the current programs of record, um, such as standard missile threes used for Aegis missile defense, which have ranges into low Earth orbit and even low medium Earth orbit, um, and develop a a kinetic interceptor system that's that's comparable to what the adversary in China and Russia have deployed uh, on that side of things. On the other sides, you know, there there are commercial companies that have the ability to build things a lot quicker or modifying things a lot quicker than going through the standard concept all the way through testing, all the way through the programmatic process that has typically been the case. And the people that the Space Force has been appointing in charge of their acquisition system, whether it be General Gutlein at Space Systems Command, Mr. Cavelli at SAFSQ in the Pentagon policy side, and the new uh, general taking over for General Lacori on the requirements side, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but all three of those guys have NRO backgrounds or NRO SMC backgrounds. And as a result of that, NRO background typically has the, the reputation in Congress, at least, of being more quick from concept to launch. And so whether that's true or not, that's the perception. And so we'll just have to see if they leverage some of those, those activities. And you'll also see in Congress pushing them to buy more commercial in the near term while developing their more exquisite stuff in the long term. So whether they do that, I don't know. 
Uh, I've been advocating for that as a way to, to do something quick and demonstrate or through a rapid capabilities office or something, which they have, but I don't know if that'll actually be done, but that's what they should do. And what about inflation? I mean, this is going to be the not in the tug of war battle for the top line number. The Bureau for Labor Statistics calculated the annual inflation rate at 8.6% in May. This can't be good for space and defense. Is this going to be a factor? It is. It's certainly not good. I mean, if you consider that, you know, after you subtract, you know, what are the crossovers from uh, SDA and the other services, your real increase in budget is really only about 10%, which, you know, granted looks good compared to the other services. But as Chris points out, this is a drop in a bucket and a drop in a bucket in one of the most strategic domains upon which the others depend. So if you really have an 8.6% increase in inflation, you know, we're essentially just standing still. Yeah. And if you're really wanting to have the capabilities that we need, it's going to require a much bigger budget than than what they have requested. It's going to require, at least from talking to some people, a 10 to 15% increase over over time. This is not just a one a one uh, a one year thing, and then you can drop it back off again. This is a sustained expansion that is required in order to get just to where we need to be bare minimum, not even to talk about the cool visionary stuff that would be good to deal with um, in the near, mid, and long term in cislunar space. I'm just talking about dealing with the near-term threat. Um, when you're dealing with a cislunar, which is already starting up, you got to deal with that too. And while the Chinese are looking at building GPS equivalents out there in the near future, like within the next year or two, on top of their comm relays, and we're we're still having folks making discussions about the moon being, you know, not a big deal or not something to worry about in the next 20 years, such as the, I think the Pentagon spokesman pretty much kind of deflected that question um, a couple of days ago. So I think, you know, this is something that has to be taken care of. And I think you're going to have to see something similar to what happened with the Air Force in the early 50s when a good chunk of the DOD budget went to building out strategic air command at the expense of the Army and the Navy for about eight to 10 years in order to get the service where it needed to be to address the priorities of the time. I'm also actually wondering about the sheer number of uniformed space operators, because when I look at the draft authorizations, all the other services will have at least 100,000 in their active components. And that's from new recruits right up to seasoned leadership, officers and enlisted. But when I look at the US Space Force, it's a plus up of 200 to a grand total of 8,600. And that 200 is likely, you know, the Space Development Agency moving over. Now, I know the Space Force is supposed to be a lean service, but this just feels underweight for the fight class. I mean, what's going on here? Well, I'll start by saying, as, as Peter mentioned earlier, that with the Space National Guard piece, um, if there is no Space National Guard, the Space Force is going to lose about 20% of their manpower pool that's not counted in this number that you mentioned uh, because they're under Air Force, Air National Guard numbers, not Space Force numbers. In addition to that, if they lose those bodies, they're going to have to find the manpower to take over the electronic warfare systems and the uh, space surveillance networks and things that are being manned by these people 
um, that they don't have currently um, allowed and authorized in their numbers. So that's one thing. The second thing is, is you'll hear some people say, and I'm sure Peter knows this, and we'll probably mention more about this, is in the, in, in the commercial world, um, space operations doesn't require a whole lot of people due to a lot of AI and automation. Um, however, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily fit exactly with the military that has deployable ground-based assets as well as the standard command and control of satellites. So as you get into more weapons type systems, ground and space base, you're gonna need people to operate those and you're gonna need enough people to, to be able to deploy if deployable um, and reconstitute and recover and train and ready. And you're gonna need several bodies per one. It's not just one for one, you're gonna need at least four per one in order at least in order to get the, the proper one to four deployment dwell times for these deployable assets that other combatant commands are leveraging besides US Space Command, I might add. So um, I understand the lean argument, but part of me thinks that they're they're way beyond lean. They're, they're emaciated and they're anemic and we need to get um, more after the requirements, the true requirements. Um, and I know there's been studies on this forever, but we haven't really seen anybody argue for that. So I would, you know, fully agree with what Chris said, and this does come back again to the importance of, you know, having a reserve component that can augment uh, this extremely lean service. Now, why is it that way? You know, I think primarily this was a an ability to sell the space force to, you know, certain members of Congress that were reticent, and you know, it's created a bit of a trap because I think most people realize that to do space right, it's going to need to grow. And, and we're really talking about a pittance. I mean, that number of operators is so small. And to, to give you a sense, you know, unlike in the Army where personnel costs dominate, in out of this budget, the personnel costs are just 4%, you know, 4% of the overall budget. And you compare that with uh, procurement, you know, procurement is just 15%. And the ops and maintenance that we were talking about, that's just 16%. And RDT&E, as we were talking about, that's 64% of the budget, right? So the increasing personnel is like the smallest, cheapest thing you can do in order to enhance your overall space power. And, and even within the, the uh, focus of this administration, Personnel is really where you need it, because if you want to integrate space power, it means that you're going to have to send Space Force officers to combatant commands and forward units. You're going to have to send them to interagency posts. You're going to have to send them abroad to embassies to work on this sort of diplomatic you know, missions. You're going to need to grow those people through education and education with industry, you know, which takes time out of, of folks in the forward units. And of course, if you look at what happened to the Air Force, you know, one of the reasons why the Air Force did not survive, you know, as a core of the Army was that the support services required were really the constraint on building their capability. And so they needed to have control of their own support services. And even now, you can see what happens when the Space Force has to rely on the Department of the Air Force for some of its education for its judge advocate generals, for its public uh, public um, affairs, and for its legislative liaison, right? Uh, it does not control all the things that are key to the service. So 
there's really no way that the Space Force is going to be able to perform its mission unless this number uh, goes up. And we need to swallow that bitter pill, if you want to say so. But again, at, at just 4% you know, of the Space Force budget, which is just you know less than 5% of the DOD budget, this is a very, very small pill to swallow. So now let's talk about perhaps the ugly. Uh, first up is China and the moon. And we know that some commercial players are worried that China is going to set the rules of acquisition on the moon and in the cislunar region. This week, three space experts penned an opinion piece in uh, War on the Rocks that essentially said that we're not taking security near and on the moon seriously. And just a few days before that, the NASA administrator, Bill Nelson, went off script a bit, but he said that China is basically seeking to own the moon. I see nothing about the moon in this budget. Well, I think fundamentally what you've got is you've got a uh, administration guidance that said that, you know, we want DOD to stay in the background that we want NASA, you know, to lead. Of course, the problem is, is that, you know, as we've seen from uh, from Eric Berger's leaked NASA report in Ars Technica, NASA is just frankly not up to the challenge. They're not the NASA of 1960s. They're letting deadlines slip internally you know, uh, you know, his bottom line was that, you know, essentially we're not going to see anything close to a sustained moon base for another 15 years, which might as well be never in terms of, of space flight. And, uh, and, you know, as I was saying at the very beginning of my remarks, you know, this budget is very much in line with what the talking points of the Space Force and the talking points of the administration are. And, and this is one of the places where I think it really falls down. You know, this represents absolutely the centroid of what the legacy Air Force Space Command was thinking was important about space, plus a little bit of SDA for missile tracking. It really doesn't in any way accomplish, you know, what, uh, you know, what Rogers and Cooper had in mind in terms of keeping up with with China and making sure, uh, even as uh, uh, at the time Representative Jim Bridenstein had talked about being able to create a sort of a free and open cislunar region and making sure that we're moving fast enough there. So unlike in previous budgets where there were significant call-outs for, uh, you know, accelerate cislunar, you know, this budget uh, does not have clarity in terms of line items that are calling these out. Uh, it's certainly something that has been, you know, asked by the Secretary of the Air Force to de-emphasize. And of course, now it's coming back to bite them. Where even, you know, as you mentioned, you know, some of the authors of this uh, of this War on the Rocks piece are not typically associated with pushing for this. So I think it shows just how far behind the administration uh, uh and the Congress, who typically has been pushing this, and certainly the Space Force are in taking care of U.S. equities beyond GEO. Well, and I'll just add a couple of extra things to that. First off, let me just mention that when we're talking about requirements for the Space Force, typically requirements are generated by combatant commanders in what's called integrated prioritization lists. And then those go into the Joint uh, Requirements Oversight Council, which is a Joint Chiefs of Staff entity. And they put together and they rack and stack the priorities of all the combatant commanders. And then they 
they sort of help guide the the budget process on what is to be funded or not from across the spectrum. And so right now, U.S. Space Command um, has been primarily focused on the terrestrial support mode. Um, the deputy commander is a very visionary guy, um, General Shaw. The, the current commander is General Dickinson, who's Army. And so because it's a joint command and a lot of its focus has been on terrestrial support, a lot of the policy discussions has been on warfighting and, and, and terrestrial force support. Um, from the space frameworks document that came out uh, last year, earlier this year, to the national defense strategy, to all sorts of other documents. And so there's, there's, there's a box that they have to operate within. And as a result of, of some of those precedents of how civil military affairs works in our country over the last 20 years or so, at least, that they're, they're kind of hindered from advocating for, for some of the stuff. And then that gets to the other kind of awkward thing um, the Congress, in addition, in this budget, in addition to plussing up some things and, and reducing some other things, also had some pretty harsh, as one reporter told me, language that basically says, hey, Space Force, I'm paraphrasing, essentially, hey, Space Force, uh, you need to operate within the budget we give you. Don't be thinking about making any plans for anything beyond this. And oh, by the way, your five-year defense program plan, which is every budget typically has how they want to spend funding out to five years uh, of budgets from this this budget year out five years from it. And they basically show an increase and then a rapid drop off. So they don't even really show where they want to go in the next five years uh, to the Congress's satisfaction while simultaneously Congress is saying, we're not going to give you much more. So it's kind of a conflicting thing here. And on one side, you say, we want you to do more and keep up with China and have space superiority. On the other side, um, they say they support where we're going, but they don't like how they're doing it. So it's kind of a confusing mess in some ways. Um, and finally, I'll mention to what Peter was talking about with the NASA not really being there and other things. The Artemis Accords was mentioned earlier. And one of the things that was mentioned is, is norms also. And if you look at Artemis Accords as sort of a, a, a shaping of cislunar behavior, if you will, as sort of the guiding principles for civil space and commercial space. Um, if you look at history, primarily national security entities, whether it's the Army or the Navy, have, have been there to help enforce those norms, whether it's on the sea, in the air, whatever, to help support and defend commercial interests of, the, of, of our country. And for whatever reason, um, that old mentality of the sanctuary model of space is different and should be kept as a refuge even though our adversaries, China and Russia, who declare them as such, not because we declare them as such, um, are pushing weapons into, into orbit and are not really changing their tune despite test bans and norms and pushes for that. So commercial sector wants to see a robust space force, um, but for whatever reason, there's this, there's this conflict between even within themselves, uh, within the budget language of where they want to go and how far are they going to be allowed to go. So that's kind of confusing. Is this just growing pains? So I, I do think primarily it's growing pains. I mean, when you when you look at, for instance, uh, I think it's growing pains in a number of ways. I mean, what I think is actually positive about what I said in the beginning is that when the Space Force decides to positively take the initiative and message about what they think the problems are, they have been successful in convincing 
the administration and the Congress. So, you know, they wanted to make the case that our space assets are vulnerable, you know, that there's a threat out there that we need to do something about it. This budget actually reflects the fact that that gets done. When they've been bold and said, hey, we really need more, uh, you know, science and technology investments, you know, that that's a very significant plus up in this, you know, even after the Congress decremented it, you know, about, thir- you know, uh, 13 million or so, it's still a very significant increase over the over the past year. And the good thing is that, you know, the Space Force is likely to grow. I think more and more Space Force officers are looking in the farther term, starting to think about space as a domain itself. And as they become convinced, what this budget suggests is that they can convince the Congress to move in, in those directions. But really, the, the balance of initiative lies with current serving Space Force officers to articulate what they think things are. Now, as far as the lack of credibility in the five-year budget plans, it, it does seem as if it's at odds with what should be a continual need to increase over time, uh, you know, to continually experiment and then build new systems to essentially commit to the fact that we are in a, you can call it a strategic competition, but it is essentially an arms race to be able to be in a position of superior advantage uh, in order to create a sustained deterrent. And we're going to have to bite the bullet and say that we're willing to to spend in that game in order to keep a space a, a free and open domain of commerce and to deter war on the ground. Now, what, part of the reasons why they're not getting a credible five-year budget plan is that when they transferred from being Air Force Space Command uh, and Space Missile Command to Space Systems Command and to the Space Force, not all the billets were transferred from the unit manning document for analysis. And, you know, they probably like the kind of analysis. Congress probably likes the level of analysis they get from, for instance, the NRO. But the NRO literally has 10 times the number of analysts and 10 times the budget to do an analysis that the that the SWAC, uh, the Space War Fighting Analysis Center, has. And so one of the things that Congress ought to be plussing up on is the analytical capability that's going to give them the answers, uh, you know, they want. Um, The other thing is, you know, over five years, I believe I heard this year that they're planning to start thinking about putting uh, space-based radar for ground targets, uh, you know, in starting next year. So that certainly would be another wedge on top. So the idea that, you know, the Space Force budget is going to crest and then go down that certainly does not seem credible to me. Yeah, and the other thing I'll I'll just mention that can I I've, I've tried to make the case um, so far is that there's a combination issue that the Space Force leaders are constrained to a point within the policy box that they're given to operate in, and within a financial box that they're given, both from the OMB side, the Office of Management and Budget, as well as the Congress. I mean, the Congress up until recently was still debating what the top line was going to be for FY23. And we've had budgets that have been late for the last two or three years. So it's very hard for them to do their concurrent planning of three years at a time, one that's coming due, one that they're, that's up next, and the one that's the future, when you don't even know where you're going to be starting from. 
So in a way, they're kind of make the plane catch up from last year, which uh, was initially sent without a five-year defense plan. It was just a single year. Um, in addition to that, though, I will mention that, as, as Peter was saying, if, if they're wanting to see uh, growth, they need to say so um, and be a little more bold about it. Other, other, I, I understand that there are times when, when, when the policy leaders basically constrain them from speaking, even in hearings. That's just the nature of the beast sometimes. But from talking to different congressional folks, I mean, they're, they're, in, they're, they're nearing the end of the honeymoon phase where essentially the Congress is willing, at least they say they're willing to give the Space Force everything they need, but they're just not arguing for it. Um, and which is why you see a lot of them asking for reports and they're requiring the reports to get the answers out of the service. Because for various reasons, again, some of them policy restraints, not necessarily because they're just, they don't want to, it's just because they're, they're not able to. And so that's why it falls to guys like Peter and I to be able to articulate what should happen in the budgets um, whenever, you know, our compatriots in the services aren't able to. So just keep all that in mind that we, we may sound like we're, we're getting down on the service. We're not um, to, to, to the extent that we are, that we're, we're talking about it. What we're saying here is, is, you know, Congress needs to, needs to do some pushing um, in order to get things across if they think it's more important than what the policy of the administration is allowing. Chris, Peter, thank you so much for your time. No thank problem. You. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Meradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.